You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Hello, welcome to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to look into the horror films, dissecting them one screen legend and franchise at a time. The full moon is up, so it can only mean one thing. Time for the full moon sessions and time to delve into another one of the lycanthrope films that have hit the cinema. Um, we're in particular looking at uh, the classic, one of the best. Arguably, people have said that this is the best werewolf film, an American werewolf in London. In order to successfully uh, dissect these films, though, we need a team of horror aficionados who will form the surgical team each episode. Uh, let me introduce you first up. Yours truly, Paul Farrell, and uh, I am the lead surgeon and host for the series of the podcast. And joining me each episode of the Full Moon Sessions at the Operating Theatre is uh, none other than Nick Alford. Hey, mate. How are you going? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Just uh, excited to crack this one open, mate. We have been talking about this one for what seems like an age. Since I first met you, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, um, and when we came up with the idea of the Full Moon Sessions um, and doing these things every every full moon um i think you were a bit surprised that the first choice i came up with was the howling yeah surprised slash disappointed <laughs> i was like okay when are we doing when are we doing american werewolf when are we doing american yeah. werewolf and then lo and behold we are fortunate here so that those of us who um so those of you who are tuning in to this podcast and may not be in australia there is a, a sydney film festival basically uh, put on uh, a screening of An American Werewolf in London. And it's not just any screening, it's uh, the old-fashioned driving screening of this. Uh, and this was an opportune moment for us to go out and watch this, as you should watch it, on a Definitely, big, big yeah. fuck-off screen, in the comfort of your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, with hot dogs and chips. Come on. Nice. It's great. So, um... I guess, like as usual, before we kind of dissect the the movie plot itself, um, I, we kind of ask each other, "Where were you when you first watched this? What were your early memories of it?" Um, and we've talked about this before, so evidently, um, we have both seen this movie before. Yeah. Um, what was your earliest memory of it, or do you remember when you first watched it? Oh, hundred um, percent. I was quite young at the time, and uh, I'd managed to get it on videotape. Um, and uh, I was watching it in my front room. I knew my parents were out. It was middle of the day. <laughs> They'd nipped out. And uh, my sister wanted to watch it with me. And I went, no, you're far too young. You know, I'm the older brother. You're not watching it. And she said, right, well, if you don't let me watch it, I'm going to tell mum and dad you're watching it. So I went, okay, fine. Sit down. Started watching it. Got up to the scene where David, the werewolf, is running through the forest naked and in walk my parents screaming, <laughs> what the hell are you watching? As then David starts to rip open a deer's head. Um, yeah. My sister's screaming, saying, you know, Nick made me watch it. And uh, yeah, got into a bit of trouble over that one. So yeah, thank you, Kate. <laughs> so how old were you when you watched it? I don't know. I've been trying to work that one out. Yeah. Like, my parents would never leave me alone <laughs> when I was that young, but I would have been... Uh, around maybe 10, something yeah. like that, I reckon. Yeah, maybe yeah. slightly earlier. And younger sister, obviously. Uh, yeah, younger sister. Yeah. She was. She would have been eight. So it was actually probably a lot younger. That Maybe I was eight and she was six. Wow. I remember when we were in uh, primary school, Yeah. Um, we used to say it in the playground to each other, beware the moon, stay on the path. Yes. Because uh, the mate who'd beware given it to me, yeah, he, um, his older brother uh, had given me the tape. He was always a good supply of uh, horror movies. Nice, nice. So we're talking like... Um, for those that are uh, unfamiliar, we're talking about old school VHS at this point too. Like, yeah. you know, the proper way that our generation, I'm going to sound like a real old fuddy here, but the, the time when our generation were watching movies tended to be uh, either, like you said, like lent from older cousins or relatives or your dad's or mum's private stash that they've got somewhere. Um, and I, I think I said to you, I... I I've got a thing about these kind of movies. I, I never recollect where I was when I first watched them. I know I've watched them countless times. I had a similar kind of discussion with, with Ant when we were talking about um, Alien and Aliens. I don't remember where I was when I first watched them, but like a lot of the movies I watched were over at my cousin's house. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of older cousins, and we just ended up just piling like, you know, that's where I watched a lot of all the old Arnie kind of stuff, Predator and yeah. Robocops and, you know... Um, and I'm no doubt that this would have been in there amongst that, for sure. Had to be, but I yeah, yeah no no recollection of 
I mean, there are odd bits in there that kind of, you know, rewatching it now that come flooding back to me. But yeah, like it's one of those movies that every time you watch it, it's a treat, you know. Yeah, but there's nothing that you, you can't remember just sitting down for the first time. No, there, no. no. That's fair enough. No. All right, so um, well, what's interesting about this too is like it's a very British film. It is, yeah. It's it's yeah, very British with all the London buses and all the landmarks. So many London landmarks yeah. in it. You'd almost think it was made by a British director. Yeah, you would. And like I, I think I even said to you while we were watching the screen as well is that, that some of the humour is very British too. Um, that comes across in that, you know, um, and even like you know, I've Frank Oz is in it, and yeah. yes, he's American, but a lot of his humour is is quite British in style. Um, it's so yeah, Python-esque, isn't yeah. It? There was even the cop, the uh, second cop character in it was reminded me a lot of Cleese in some of his performances. I was going to say that, yeah. Um, which was kind of interesting. Anyway, but we're kind of waffling all over the place, so let, let let's um, let's kind of get get to it. So. As I said, it's a British-American um, horror comedy film. It was written and directed by John Landis. When he was nine, 18, 19? When he wrote this? or did Yeah, when he wrote it. Okay. So he wrote the story when he was uh, a runner on the set of a film called uh, Kelly's Heroes. Ah, yeah. Um, in Yugoslavia, or the former Yugoslavia. Mm. And he saw um, the someone being buried upside down by a bunch of gypsies. Right. And uh, so he didn't... So the idea was that the dead body wouldn't come alive and start running around and causing mischief. So uh, they buried him with cloves of garlic and everything. Wow, that's awesome. And John Landis sort of thought to himself, what would happen if this fella came alive? He'd be completely unprepared. He's an American in a foreign country. Yes, yes. And I think that's where this all stemmed from. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love those little kind of little stories and like where where these germs of ideas come from. Mm. Um, Okay, so yeah. Uh, John Landis, and obviously, like you know, uh, we're, go- we're jumping ahead a bit here, but he was um, off the success of this film. That's um, Michael Jackson. Obviously, approached him, and uh, Thriller was created. Yeah. Um, because uh, he was so impressed with the effects, um, and that's another thing we'll come to. But we'll, we will come to the effects part of it. Um, and so uh, we've got starring in this. We've obviously got uh, David Norton um, playing the lead, and Jenny, Jenny Agatha. Mm-hmm. Jenny. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Griffin Dunn rounding yeah. up the uh, the trio, the main trio. Um, but essentially, like the uh, the opening scene is you, you're thrown straight into the the Yorkshire Moors, yeah. um, and uh, two American backpackers, middle of nowhere, and off the the back of a the... truck filled with lambs. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and they just kind of get dropped off in the middle of nowhere. One is definitely more comical than the two. I'd say... Uh, a bit more light-hearted. I'd say they both seem to make jokes. I they know, do. Like, David loves his knock-knock jokes, and he's a bit more obvious. But, uh, so when they do that, when they're walking off after they've got off the truck, that, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was um, ad-lib, that kind of knock-knock bit, wasn't it? Not that I know of. Could have been. I thought I'd read somewhere it that it be. was. Um, they kind of just riffed. They were just supposed to kind of, I think in the notes were just meant, um, I could be wrong, so people can write to me and go, you're wrong, you twat. No, but, no, just um, say you're right and we'll edit it uh, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they, um, my understanding was that as they, it, it was just like, yeah, say knock knock joke. That was kind of all that was in the script. Yeah. And uh, so what you actually hear is them just kind of riffing off. And they, what was great about that though is already you get a sense of camaraderie between those two. And that's essential as the film unfolds as well. Yeah. Um, and so, I love their friendship. It's yeah, very it's natural. really, yeah, it is. It really is. It comes across that way. And I think, as I said, that needs to happen because of the, of the events that transpire as yeah. the film progresses. Um, so they end up uh, turning up at the uh, Slaughtered Lamb. Name of the pub. Love it. Uh, in the middle of nowhere. Lo- they walk in, locals are all kind of doing that. It's the whole kind of piano moment, you know, in a Western <laughs> where somebody walks in and everybody stops. No tumbleweed. No tumbleweed in this instance, no. Um, and they kind of go in and it's very much, you know, in the heart of, like, Yorkshire. It's Although yeah. you were telling me the location of the pub wasn't in Yorkshire. No, it's it's in Surrey, about half an hour from where I live. I used to live, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, awesome. So, um, but not that you'd know that. It's done, it's done in a really uh, great way that they kind of, you really, it feels authentic. 100%, yeah. And so they they go in the pub. All the locals are there. Um, there's a bit of tension, um, but the ice is broken by um, the uh, Telly T man. 
<laughs> Brian Glover. Brian Glover, thank you. I always forget his name. So he was in he was in Alien Three, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so, um, yeah, the tension is broken by him as he tells tells this joke. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo joke. Yeah. Um, and those that have watched this film, it's quite a, a iconic scene. This bit um, as they're riffing because he there's uh, you've got Rick Mail in there too. Yeah. Um, chess player number chess two. Chess player number two, um, and um, and yeah, the, the whole kind of it is it's something out of it is a nod to like the old Hammer horror films and the uh, the old kind of u- yeah. Universal classic, you know, where they're in in those instances they're meant to be in Transylvania. So they could easily be one of those. Yeah, and they've just kind of picked that up and plonked, plonked it in the middle of Yorkshire, and um, and that's something that John Landis has always been quite um, proud of is always acknowledging the history of horror and um, never kind of deviating away from it. As we do this record, it's not been long since The Mummy has come out, Tom Cruise's The Mummy. Yeah. And he has, John Landis has apparently come out and attacked the movie saying that it, it. Yeah, saying it has pays no respect to its history. So that's kind of where I'm going with that. He's somebody that's very passionate about film, passionate about the stories that have made these films and and they're they're kind of like the building blocks of of where to progress from he references the werewolf movies a couple of times yeah a lot of times in there and even in in, um, hammer as well which is why i kind of mentioned it is there's a scene later on where um uh david's character is talking to jenny agatha um in bed saying have you seen the wolfman you know and starts describing it and her but before he does that she says do you mean the one with Oliver, Oliver Reed? Reed now that's um, that's actually um, from The Curse of the Werewolf which is a Hammer horror film great movie if you've never seen it Jack is the one that notices that there's the, the pentagram kind of sign on the wall and he's, he's the one that kind of already kind of he's a bit more cluey at this stage isn't he than, yeah. than uh, David is um, and then that's when they ask, ask about you know why that is and then they kind of definitely get the cold shoulder and they're sent on their way and they leave um and the barmaid is kind of saying you can't let them go on their own yeah, whatever you do i love that and then you know and so it's murder then is it <laughs> or it's to be murder is it um and so the um and that's kind of it they have their little debate and then we join the the two main guys as they're going off there is a warning though isn't there mm-hmm. that they kind of give so stick to the roads and stay clear of the moors. Yeah. Beware the moon. Beware the moon. Yeah. And that's kind of it. And then like there's it's quite comical how this happens. So like we're following the two guys and they're just talking and then they kind of mention the rules that they were warned of and that's when they realise that they've walked off the road. But they kind of the way it happens is that it's very clear that they're walking off the road. Yeah. When it when it occurs. It always struck me as like when that moment happens, you're like, um, it's very obvious that they just suddenly because they suddenly just turn. It's not like they yeah suddenly left. Oh, let's go towards that tree in the middle of the field. I mean, even, even as a kid, I remember the rules being said, and we used to recite them in the playground. Like yeah, you're saying, but um, what's a werewolf going to do? Just come up to the road and go, "Oh shit, no, I can't get yeah. you." There's an invisible force field. Oh, god, you took the path. Damn it! <laughs> shit. Can't get me. Come, come in this shrubbery over here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. They've they've got they've they've disobeyed the rules. There's always rules to these horror films, yeah. and they've disobeyed it, and they've gone out off into the. Into don't the, feed them after midnight. Don't feed them after midnight. <laughs> that's it. Um, and so, lo and behold, there's a bit of a comical moment. This I really like the way this builds up this bit because even though I kind of was mocking the bit where they've walked off the road, the bit where David slips over, yeah, onto the ground, and there's a moment where he goes, you know, just help me up, and then that's when. The mm. werewolf attack. So, like, the, they do start running in the lead up to that because they can hear growling, and it's almost like this kind of, you know, this doesn't happen. You know, there's no such thing of werewolves, and they're kind of disbelieving of it. And then, as I said, a comical moment where he slips over, and just as he does so, and asks his friend Jack to pick him up, this wolf comes out and attacks him. And it's and and I quite like this bit. Like his immediate reaction, Jack's immediate reaction is to run to pick it. Yeah. Um, and I always thought that that's actually quite a genuine thing. And we did say that about Jack's character. He's always genuine in, and in the moment. Yeah, and very honest. And very honest, yes. Um, 
and then he runs. So, but of course, he then realizes that he can't leave his friend there. So he goes yeah. back, but he goes back, and he just sees this mutilated body. It's it's clever because otherwise, you think as a lead character, you might think he's a bit of a douchebag for leaving his mate. Yeah, but do you know what? It'd be understandable for leaving someone if they're getting eaten by a whale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a nice touch. He turned around and thought, no, no, so I'm going to help him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so he goes back, and then um, obviously that's his mistake. Yeah. Because uh, as he gets there, he then is attacked by the wolf. And you kind of, at this stage, you'd be forgiven to think, are these two guys just going to be killed off right at the very beginning? But then the locals turn up, gunshots go off, they shoot the, the werewolf. Save the day. Save the day. Bit late, but. <laughs> A bit late, yeah. Better than ever. We then, he, we then cut to what we're told is then three weeks later. And David wakes up in a hospital in London. Yeah. So now he's an American in London. He's not quite a werewolf yet. <laughs> um, so he wakes up, um, and that's where he's greeted by um, the nurse, who is played by Jenny Agatha. Um, and there's a bit of, like, uh, carry-on kind of, uh, you know, oh, he's, he's Jewish. I don't know why she doesn't talk like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because I looked at his penis, I did. Um so yeah, a bit carry on kind of moment. Yeah, a bit I mean? tongue in cheek. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, uh, and then the serious doctor kind of turns up um, to the scene. You know, puts him in order. Um, he's they're trying to feed it to him that he um, he was attacked by a, a lunatic. Yeah. Not a werewolf. Which he was in a way, I think. Yeah. Like well, apparently, yeah. Because as far as I understand it, he was an escaped lunatic. But they thought he was a lunatic because he was going around telling everyone he was a werewolf. Right. So he was a lunatic the same way David's a lunatic, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah, so then um, there's the, the rest of the kind of, the next kind of chain of events is like David in hospital. He gets f- more familiar with Jenny Agatha's character. <laughs> gets more familiar. Oh, like she, she's um, she's not very shy. matronly, motherly to him, which yeah. we kind of commented on, like, you know, she has to force feed him. Read my bedtime story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There is that kind of going on, which I'm sure Freud would have a field day with that. Yeah. Um, that kind of whole kind of write up, and then um, and there's there's it becomes quite fractured and disjointed through this section while he's in the hospital. Mm. He's having lots of these weird nightmares, like you said. There's naked running through the woods, bit eating a raw deer. Raw deer. <laughs> a deer. Dreams within dreams. Dreams within dreams. Yeah, and then like Nazi. Uh, zombies, zombies yeah. shooting people, shooting his family up, shooting his family, killing his family. That's right. And then, um, and then waking up from that in the hospital, only to have Jenny Agatha kind of killed by a zombie Nazi hiding behind the curtains, hiding behind the curtains, and then kind of waking up again from that. So, but what makes this? And like, if you're kind of listening to this and you've never seen an American Werewolf in London, you might be thinking, "What the fuck is going on?" Um, but there's a reason for this because he has to start questioning his sanity because this is the moment, the next scene is where his friend Jack appears, bloody and mauled. Yeah, it, it kind of kind of eases us in, into it a bit as well. Yeah. Whereas if he just turned up out of the blue, he'd be like, oh, what's going on here? But, you know, as we've been uh, eased in with these other dream sequences, we kind of go, okay, this could be a bit more. This is where that film's going. Yes. Um. So, so yeah, so, like, so his friend appears. So he's questioning... Um, whether this apparition is, is real or not. Mm. And it's really good makeup effect here. Like, Fucking incredible. Oh, so so good. And Still this, today. It, yeah, completely agree. And this this is right. So is this Rick Baker's handiwork too? With Certainly the, is, With the skin? Yeah. Okay, so, like, I mean, the guy's a legend, without doubt, but this was, this particular movie, you know, cemented him into the Hall of Fame of, of films. Um, and as you said, he went on and won the Oscar for this. Yes, yeah. The first ever... Um, Best uh, makeup, uh, makeup, yeah. Yeah, how how cool is that? I mean, like you you got to say that that there's great reason for that. Like if you watch this film, um, you know we saw indicators of it already when when uh, David gets kind of mauled at the very beginning. But it's dark, you know, the light's not quite right. This is daylight. Yeah. And his skin is literally falling off his face and his neck. Yeah. And you were saying that there was. Uh, unintentional flappage <laughs> flappage bit of skin yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a happy accident one of those things Rick Baker was saying was just a happy accident 
Which is cool, you know, and like, um, and I think a lot of people have modelled, well, horror films since then have modelled the make the the styling and the makeup. We're talking like pre CGI, yeah, period here. So everything you see is is looks real. It's you know you could reach out and touch it, and um, and it's an you know, incredible achievement to be able to do these things and make it believable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a, it's a really really great great scene. And as I said, so David's question is sanity bit. Um, and this is also where we get laid down, I guess, the next set of rules to the game where Jack is saying to David, you know, I'm I, I'm the living dead. I'm going to be walking around until the curse is lifted. And the only way that the curse can be lifted is if the bloodline of the werewolf stops. Yeah, because he was murdered. Yeah. He's, he's stuck in limbo. An That's unnatural right. death. Exactly. And the person who he's carrying on the bloodline is David. Yeah. So he's basically saying that David has to die, he has to kill himself. But the problem is, is David is questioning his sanity, he doesn't think any of this is real. Here's the next interesting bit. So like then uh, Jenny, I always forget her name, she's the nurse, Jenny, Jenny Agatha, um, turns up into the room, kind of reassures him. But she then, when he leaves the hospital, invites him back to her place to stay. Yeah, which is nice, huh? It's very... Uh, nice of her very open and very kind yeah. of and there's this great like bit where they kind of turn up at the, her apartment a flat and she kind of shows him around the interior of the of the house it's quite a small little yeah apartment um and, and this is the bedroom and this is the bedroom charming um and yeah and he's like you know quite rightly points out there's only one bed and then she she is quite open with him we were talking about him being open with her you're right she but is, she's yeah. quite open with him too mm. saying you know i i don't know what i'm saying but i've i've had seven lovers three of them were nights one night stands one night stands yeah and do you know what i mean there is this kind of awesome like it's almost like they're draw, they they have to be drawn to each other for some reason there's a reason that their paths are crossed yeah um yeah i just found that kind of interesting that and he as their relationship uh, develops, he becomes more and more open and quite clear-cut with her, saying, like, I've seen David and... No, he is David. I have seen Jack yeah, and in she, a vision and... She's not I'm a werewolf. dismissive. No. But it's not like she believes it, necessarily, no. either. She's no. just obviously aware he's been through a trauma and yeah. he's processing it, however. and I think that just makes her more endearing as a character. Like, we have a lot of her just doing nurse stuff yes. like she's chatting to the, the no kid no no <laughs> you know it just makes yeah. you you know love her even more because she's dealing with these annoying children yeah, and, yeah you know she's a nurse so she obviously cares for people and that just makes you feel for her even more and yes you know it feels like something she would genuinely do is you know feel sorry for a foreigner in a strange land who's just lost his best mate yeah well yeah. i'll put you up because what else are you going to do you know it all feels quite believable there yeah yeah i agree because over such a short period of time it could feel like bullshit you know, it's like, oh, what now? They're suddenly in love, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that, and I guess that happens a lot, um, especially in the, the we dare we mention sequel, an American <laughs> werewolf in Paris. Let's not no. Um, but, but that that, that felt forced their their relationship. Anyway, well, because she was Jenny's daughter as well. Like, without oh, was spoilers. That, yeah, was, far out. I was yeah. trying to remember what the link was. Yeah. Um. Cool. So, and we may well. I hate to say this, but we probably will have to do a podcast on that down the track. So brace yourself. Well, a little <laughs> note on that. John Landis was saying he had a choice of shooting in either London or Paris because uh, apparently they're the most highest places that have claimed to have werewolf um, attacks. Really? Or a werewolf presence, I think he said. So he was going to shoot in either one of those, and he didn't speak French, so he chose London. <laughs> so How like, do you okay. find that out? How, like... Where is that written? Like it was before Google, so you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. later. Yeah, yeah, far out. Because uh, I would have thought it would be more like Eastern Europe, you know. You'd think so. Um, one thing he also said was he uh, was bringing across, you know, uh, four Amer- Americans to work in England. Mm. So uh, the British government said, "Oh, you can't bring across Griffin Dunn. Just get a, a North American actor uh, living in England. You know, we won't yeah, work with his visa." Yeah, yeah. And he said let him in or else I'll go and shoot in Paris. Why? And and they just went, okay, fine, uh, yeah, come in, come in. So he'd obviously found wow. the actor he wanted and, and yeah, yeah, was yeah. willing to put the, the film on the wall. Wow, that's, that's pretty, because I can't imagine anyone else playing Jack. No, no, he's great, because he, 
He's very natural. He is natural. It didn't feel forced at all, and I think that's what obviously John Landis was drawn to. Yeah, yeah. The genuine. So I never, um, I never got this until I was researching this art, you know, in preparation for the podcast. But I never twigged that he was the same guy in After Hours. Oh, I've always known. Yeah, and I love been. that movie. I can tell you where I watched that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I stayed up late one night watching it, and I it think just I did too. Yeah, freaked me out. Yeah, love it. It's such a good movie. And um, but it's like when I read it, I went. Oh, yeah, of course it is. It's yeah. totally him. You yeah. know, just didn't, you know, the two and two didn't make, you know, didn't align when I was, um, when I... We'll make mistakes, Paul, because I thought David Norton was the lead guy out of Gremlins for a while when I was a kid, so, <laughs> you know... I can understand white, that, white blindness, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I, I can understand that, though. They've got the... You know, Zach, I think his name is Zach Gilligan, isn't it? The, the, anyway, something along those lines. But he's got the short, kind of curly hair. That's it. American. Wholesome. American. I didn't realise how tall David Norton was either until I rewatched this. I did, I, he seems like a really tall guy. <laughs> well, he's quite lanky as well. Anyway, that's on the side. I, would, I, the reason <laughs> I, I guess the reason I mentioned that too is because he's the one that has to go through all the kind of prosthetics and the makeup. Yeah. And it kind of works when you see them elongate his body in that transformation scene because he's a lanky guy anyway. He's not, he's not stocky. Yeah. Um, anyway. That's on the side. Oh, so he stays over at, um, he ends up staying over at uh, Jenny Agatha's house and a bit of boom chukka wow wow happens. That night, he gets another visit from Jack. Although now Jack is looking slightly green as his body's decomposing. And that's just incredible. The idea to actually have him decompose throughout time yep. is just to the point where he's, you know, a puppet. Yeah, uh, a skeletal puppet down the end. Uh, you know, in a, in a later scene, I, and I and that always struck me. I, like I never really, I never. I was young when I watched this, but up to that point, I never really thought of the idea of, of a body decomposing. You know, you're so used After to. After died. Yeah, it's great. It's such a such a great moment, and like and yeah, it's a really again the makeup is, looks really cool in this as well. Um, and um, and there's a real heart to heart moment here, isn't there, where he's talking to to him and he's saying basically warning him again that you're going to turn mm. um, but he's still got a he's day, just... day to go you know got one more day to go but he's still very um, he's still on his side yeah like he's you know everything he's been through he's still like you need to but before I can do anything you need to die yeah but he's aware that that's obviously a hard thing for him to process as well yes yeah you know he's not like a Bob Cratchit who comes in and just gives him shit it's <laughs> like I love it. Um, no, no, very true. Um, but yeah, like, so he's kind of like, yeah, the warning again, he's going to turn into a werewolf and like, he, it's that, it's a great, it's that great moment because it's the last time that he, like they have that conversation before the actual transformation comes about. Um, and then uh, Jenny Agatha comes in, asks David what's going on and he's like, I've seen Jack again. And... I see dead people. They're mouldy, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, so like, um, and they kind of talk it through, and it's almost washed over again, though, isn't it? It's kind of like, no, it's okay. You're just, this is just because you're part of your healing process. Yeah, and I think that's what helps the fact that she's a nurse. Is she's mm. obviously heard some weird shit before and seen things and heard people say all sorts. And mm. I think the fact he's is so open. She's like, oh, okay, that's nice. You know, she doesn't completely disregard it, but. Yeah, she's supported, I think, already. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, agree. Um, so then she um, obviously has a job, so she has to go do her nursing. Yeah, and it just happens to be on the full moon that she goes off to do this. Yeah, leaving David on his own in the, in the apartment, listening to some kick-ass music. Yeah, Bad Moon Rising. Yeah, so like, um, and it's, and I said to you as well when this was playing, like, this is hands down is my favorite all-time song in a horror film love this song so much it's it's i mean it's all american right right it's swamp rock yeah to its heart content you know heart's content um awesome tune um and this is the point where he starts pacing around you can sense that something's brewing and then you know he's like when you're trying to study you're yeah, just thinking, oh, I'm yeah. Check the fridge oh, i'm gonna read the book or i'm gonna do something else yeah and then um and then the music kind of soft oh no then we cut to jenny agatha at the nurse and she's talking to the no boy the no kid and she tells, there's that great line, I'm not going to quote it properly, but it's a great line about, you know, have you ever been beaten around the head? Yeah. <laughs> I love um, that. And then he just goes, no. 
thought so. Such a great line. Uh, one of the one of the funnier lines in the movie. Um, and then um, and then we go back to uh, David in, in the apartment again. The music changes to Blue Moon, and this is where the transformation actually happens. And it's just a moment like where he's just sitting there, and then it's almost like he has this pain in his head. Is how I see it. Because yeah, his hands go straight up to his head. And he's, did he say, oh, Jesus Christ? Or, yeah, 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 he does, yeah. Um, yeah, this massive kind of pain moment, and then he kind of collapses to the ground. Yeah, John Lennis was saying how he wants to avoid the, the werewolf changing in an armchair kind of thing. It's just like, oh, look, he's morphed into it. Yeah. You know, he wants to make it look painful. And I think that's why having the light full blast, Yes. you know, um, much of the special effects department's you know, <laughs> chagrin. Yeah. Um, it just makes it look even more incredible how it's done. And uh, yeah, obviously there's there's some movie snobs today who look at that and go, oh, that's bullshit. But I think obviously we're attached to the film yeah, and it still yeah. just looks incredible to know what went into making those. It's it's like to hand, I mean, I, maybe it's, as, as you said, it's, it's a, because it's a movie of our generation. But it's a movie, I it's this is to me is one of the most iconic moments in horror movie history. Yeah. Um, it's... Um, the effects are mind-blowingly amazing um, for its time. It's incredible. Practical effects. Um, and like you said, it does look... And, and just to give a bit of background to or get a bit more kind of weight to what you were saying, um, horror, horror films, or particularly wolf transformation films in the past, particularly Universal at the time, they were always the slow crossfades. So you'd yeah. have like you normally it would normally be three transitions. So you'd have the person, the midway point, and then the wolf or whatever the creature is that they're turning into, and then it's just like a slow crossfade to that. Um, at the time when those films were made, they were that was new and inventive. It was a new technique, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they were experimenting with it to their heart's content. So we're talking like nineteen thirties kind of period here, and then nineteen forty one, I believe, was when Wolfman came out. Um, with Lon Chaney Jr. Um, so we're now kind of, what's that now, uh, 40 years later um, or so when uh, an American werewolf comes out. And things have advanced and they take the bull by the horns and really kind of run with it and don't shot. And Rick Baker and the team had a, had a tough task ahead of them to, as you said, have it in full light and and it looks painful as fuck. Like you know, it's the sound for me. The sound, oh, the audio of like cracking crack. bones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this comes down to when uh, you know how sound is so imperative in in um in films. Mm. It's um in you know in order to kind of make that believable and like because the the effects are, are something, but to kind of actually hear the ripping and the and the stretching, yeah, uh, as you said, the cracking the of the bones as it as it comes about is is an amazing. Because there's um, no blood or anything, but it feels gory. Yeah, yeah, it's just stretched. Like, like you can see, like the first bit obviously is when his hand. He looks at his hand, and mm. you see the hand stretching. Um, and then you know, lo and behold, everything else starts to stretch too. And um, there's a there's a great moment in it, right halfway through transition, where he rolls over onto his back, and he's kind of kicking yes. and, and trying to. But it's almost like his body forces him back onto all fours again. Yeah. Um, because that's how he needs to be in that position in order to become the wolf. Um, it's a great moment. I thought that was actually quite uh, a, a cool transition. Well, if you think that Landis wrote this when he was 18, he talks about, you know, uh, the transition of uh, puberty and all that being quite oh, a heavy influence. Yeah. You know, things stiffening, getting bigger and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. hair growing in places it shouldn't be. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's absolutely, and it, and that's again like uh, to talk about another werewolf film that came years later, which took that with the female skew with Ginger Snaps. Um, you know, it was, again, it it's all about the puberty and kind of coming of age and mm. and, and really and you know, the the lycanthrope um, mythology is is very much about sex. Um, you know, there's uh, to use Company of Wolves as an example as well, the God, little yeah. Red Riding Hood kind of analogy. Um, and, you know, Granny tells them not to kind of trust men with uh, eyebrows that join in the middle. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> the whole monobrow thing. Um, but yeah, that's. Beware the brow. Beware the brow. But that's like, I mean, it's Neil Jordan for a start. It's, it's seep, you know, seeping with uh, <laughs> sexual kind of metaphors and. Uh, 
throughout the uh, uh, and imagery throughout the whole of the that film. Um, so yeah, it's always been a very kind of sexual film, you know, uh, particularly on from a masculine kind of. Uh, point of view. Well, they always end up naked running in the woods. Naked running in the woods, yeah. Who, who wouldn't want to run naked in the woods <laughs> devouring deers? So, look, yeah, it's a great, great kind of transition. Eventually, you know, he changes. The last thing that uh, changes is his face, mm. where he just now elongates and then he becomes the wolf. And then something that we both picked up on on this last screening is how does he get out of the apartment? Without breaking anything. Without breaking anything. Like, nothing's disturbed in the apartment. No. Jen, Jenny comes home and she's like, oh, look, yeah. Where have you been? You know, not what the fuck you've done to my sofa. Yeah, or, look at my doilies. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Ripped to shreds they are. <laughs> um, yeah, which, okay, I guess you can forgive forgive that. because And this is where the next kind of section is his rampage through London as the wolf. Oh, is it, is it the London? Is it the subway, the underground? It comes to the, Lon- uh, the subway bit. But the first bit, it, yeah. yeah, the first kind of, the first section is where he is kind of going through the uh, back streets of like, kind of feels like Kensington kind of, you know, upper, upper mm. end. And he comes across the two, the two couple, the couple. On the way to a dinner party. Yeah. Kills them. And then we come to the, uh, the tramps like us. They were born to run. <laughs> so you got the three the three tramps um and they kind of you, you don't actually they you don't really see see them get devoured but it's it's hinted at that they get attacked yeah and then we get the tube scene with the tube scene i love that the scene. tube scene with bib fortuna as you were telling me yeah <laughs> the one he um which is a great kind of moment because tubes can be eerie as fuck especially like um if by yourself on your own at night at night which he is um and uh you know he does a whole very british there's somebody there <laughs> he's not not only that he's holding his brolly he's got his <laughs> yeah. umbrella with him in his briefcase uh, no bowler hat though no bowler hat two on the nose and i think um i think the problem is is that he drops his brolly i think that was his downfall yeah that's his talisman yeah if he'd be armed with a brolly you'd be all right so he um he kind of starts uh, heading towards down like these like the tunnel of the tubes, um, the, well, the pedestrian part I should say, um, and then he obviously sees the creature and there's this great chase scene where he's kind of running away from it, and we never see it. it's all kind of POV stuff, isn't it? Yeah. From the either the wolf's point of view or his point of view, um, running down this kind of like uh, tunnels, and eventually gets to the the escalator, trips up, and then uh, it's shot from the top of the escalator looking down yeah, across his one. body and you can just about make the bottom of the uh, of the floor when you see the paws come in and so you can see it but not see it yeah which is a great shot and you you kind of mentioned yeah. that that was one of your favorite shots in the yeah. in the movie um and then it comes up attacks kills it kills the character um and then we kind of cut to the next scene which is daytime in a zoo yeah in a wolf cage in a wolf cage with with real wolves and he's naked. And he's naked, yeah, poor bloke. And um, not only that, but like he climbs up and out of it. He's quite agile, is David Norton. Well, that, that's all. <laughs> apparently, that's because, I mean, obviously, they're real wolves, so he wants to get out there as soon as he can. <laughs> yeah, like, right. They, he was told they'd been fed, but not only that, they um, John Landis had connections with uh, the zoo to, you know, have it to be able to shoot it. I was going to say, yeah. But then they had to let the public in. So there came a point where there were actual people starting to walk in right. early. So he just like bolted out there since he's good naked. Right. And there's a, so he gets out of the cage and there's a great kind of comic scene with him and this little kid. Oh, my favourite. balloons. My favourite. <laughs> where David's hiding in some shrubbery. I can't say shrubbery without thinking of Monty no, Python. Anyway, but he's in the shrubbery. And um, and uh, so he entices the kid, the kid over and goes... Uh, uh, I'll give you a pound for your balloons. And he said, uh, and he's hesitant. Okay, I'll give you two pounds. He go, and the kid comes over and goes, I, I'm not supposed to, I don't know you, so I can't talk to you, or something along those yeah. lines. And he goes, I'm a balloon thief. <laughs> Why would a balloon thief pay me? That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh, dear. And so he eventually kind of, yeah, grabs the balloons, and that's to hide his dignity and, and try and make an escape. Um, and then he runs, steals a coat, to kind of off this couple. Yeah. Another great shot. Mummy, this naked American man took my balloons. <laughs> what? <laughs> so great. Uh, 
Uh, anyway, look, he gets out there. There's a great scene again where he's standing at a bus stop dressed in like a, a woman's uh, fur coat. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, That's actually one of the grips giving him the death stare. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. They got him to stand in. <laughs> um, but eventually he rocks up at, um, at Jenny's house. So something I missed here as well, There's the doctor goes on a little escapade. I love it. It's like a it's like a British drama. Yeah, you know, Doctor What's Midsummer Murders, yeah. <laughs> John Nettles, <laughs> the um, pleasure so, act the early years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he goes. He does a bit of investigating as to where this has occurred. So there must be somewhere up to that point. You kind of get the feeling he doesn't believe David's story, but there must be something there for him to go and investigate it. Maybe you'd think he'd he'd know the difference between a werewolf slash and a guy stabbing at him. You know, he looks, he examines the wounds. I know, saying, that's, yeah, exactly. They were dressed before you arrived here. It's like, okay, that's nice that whoever dropped you off in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's stuff there. Anyway, look, but there's some cool moments because he, he turns up at the pub, Slaughtered Lamb, mm. gets the same kind of frosty treatment from Tetley T-Man. Um, but he handles it like a boss. Yeah, man. Like he rocks in there going, you know, I'm having half a Guinness and I'm, I'm happy, I'm comfortable I love the half a Guinness. Yeah, and then he sits down, offers to play some chess and... I'm hip, I'm groovy. Yeah, but he actually gets stuck in, he's involved. You know? Yeah, that's it, he gets his hands dirty. Um, which is interesting, you know, and, the, and uh, then we get the darts player character is the one that kind of spills the beans and... Yeah, he's great. Yeah, tells him that the moon's about to come. Just waiting for him in a graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to see if the dog's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, sorry, that kind of scene um, happened before the transformation. Anyway, um, so, anyway, so the doctor then calls up Jenny's and is kind of saying, you know, has he arrived? At which point David has arrived and he's very frisky. He is. He's had his meat. It's, he's... Hormonal. He's, he's, yeah, he's rampant with desire. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but the doctor's trying to encourage them to go back to the um, to the hospital. Um, and they're on the way back, and then David hears about the news from the cab driver, who is played by Bricktop from Snatch. Yeah. Can't remember his name. He's great. It's just he's an horrible bastard. <laughs> um, and he's the one that tells them about the murders, the murders of the night before. Um, and that's where. Uh, David puts two and two together and realizes that he's probably the monster in question, yeah, yeah. and he tries to get him arrest himself arrested by the chief constable from the bill. Which is a theme in most werewolf movies, like even Monster Squad. Yes, the werewolf's there going, "Lock me up, I'm a werewolf." You know, because I guess it's the only place you're safe. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. You're safe from other people, I guess, is in the jail. There is a common theme in uh, werewolf films where the uh, werewolf character in question, the human, um is always essentially a good person at heart mm -hmm. trapped in a wolf's body, which is different to the only other likening to, I guess, classic monsters is, is Frankenstein's monster has a similar thing. But like, if you look at Dracula, they the, want to be mummy, bad. They want to be, yeah, yeah, they're evil through and through. Whereas like the Wolfman was always a little bit. So you often find in these kind of movies that they're the ones that tend to try and help the yeah. other humans. I guess because there's a bit of human still in them. Yeah, sort of begrudgingly yeah. bad. Like, it's not that like they have control over it. Yeah, that's right. David tries to get himself arrested. Uh, doesn't work, so he kind of does a bit of a runner. And he ends up um, going into a, a theatre. Yeah, moody theatre. Uh, in Leicester Square. Yeah, See You Next Wednesday, which is uh, obviously a play on See You Next Tuesday. Mm, yes. Which can work. It's not C-U-N-T. No. Um, so, yeah, which was interesting. You were telling me as well that um, prior to the film being made that that was actually um, supposed to be showing kids' films or something. And... Yeah, he wrote it originally as watching a, an animated film, so it was like a Looney Tunes thing with Roadrunner in the background or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I think he, the film, the theatre he wanted to uh, actually film at had changed to an adult theatre. So he sort of went with that, yeah. went out, shot his own porno. Which is one of the funniest pornos I've ever seen. It's like, incredible. It, the, the comedy in it is amazing. Like, you know, deep in the throes of lovemaking and, and the random neighbour turns up. With his shirt off. With his shirt off. Going, what are you playing at? And the guy goes, I don't think there's any business. I'm not talking to you. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know who you are. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> and so it's just, And then later on the phone call. From yeah, number. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just the wrong number, and she's like, oh, okay, puts it down, goes about her business. It's so funny. Um, but, like, you know, we're, we're coming to the climax, no pun intended, <laughs> of the movie here. Um, but David has his last visit from Jack, his best friend, who is now the puppet. And as I said, looks yeah. remarkable, like skele- skeletal, but except um, but looks remarkably like the uh, the cab driver I said in Ghostbusters. In Ghostbusters yeah. um, so if people haven't seen Werewolf and have seen Ghostbusters, you can hopefully picture that. Um, and this one is the real kind of heart to heart moment. This is where he re- he's like, I realise I've you know I realise what I am. I, I you know that I need to stop. How do I go about it? And yeah. they're all suggesting ways. Oh, blow your brains out. Oh, cut, slit your wrist. Jump in front of a train. Yeah, because he know. gets vis- he gets visited from the other undead, the people that he's killed yeah. in this scene. and The ghosts uh, of murder's past. Yes. Um, and it's, a, it's again, it's a quite a witty kind of moment. You know, you've got the two happy, happy as fuck couple. They're <laughs> great. Um, and, and <laughs> you then, can blow your brains out. <laughs> and then the three tramps who are kind of quite bitter and, and then the morbid Bib Fortuna yeah. guy. Um and but again, like as you quite rightly pointed out, Jack is still defending him mm. at this point. You know, kind of saying, "No, you can't hang yourself because if you botch it up, it's going to be painful." Yeah, and no, actually, I hadn't noticed this before, but um, the guy who plays Big Fortuna, mm. um, the guy in the tunnels who gets chased, he actually says, "No, it wasn't his. It wasn't Jack's idea for us to come here." Yes. Whereas I thought it was Jack's idea to come in there and hassle him and say, yeah, yeah. "I represent dead people." And you've got to kill yourself. Whereas it's just like, no, he came along to support him. Yeah. Rather than having all these dead guys come in and giving him a hard time. They yeah, basically yeah. turn up and nag him. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because like, they're doomed to follow him mm. through all eternity until it stops. Yeah. So if he kept going, he could probably fill Wembley Stadium. <laughs> have his own concert of the have undead. Own, oh, yeah, dead groupies. <laughs> but they'd all be decaying as well. I know. How awesome would that be? The dead people smell. I don't know. Never. Dead, never, you know, never, never. like that. I know dead people smell, but like <laughs> if they're in limbo. That's right. Yeah. That's why I asked Rick Grimes that one. Yeah. He's the one that's knee, well, knee about... deep in. <laughs> Just waffle anyway. Here we are. We're waffling. So yeah, look, it's um, it's it's cool. Like he's um, yeah, has this kind of kind of big moment, and he's kind of trying to decide. I don't know whether is it before he goes into the, is isn't it? Just before he goes into the into the uh, the adult theater, he calls his he tries to call sister. his parents up, but yeah. they're out, and he talks to his sister, yeah. and that's quite a nice moment too. Mm. Like you know, trying to talk to a ten year old, and he's partly like an older older sibling would, kind of goofing around a little bit, but also generally cares for her yeah, and when he's trying to relay that she kind of doesn't believe him and dismisses him and yeah. her brother you know bugger off and... and if you think about it that's the last she's the last family member he talks to mm. it's um, pretty sad that moment in the phone yeah. box what you know knowing what you know is yeah. about to happen you're like well that is his final goodbye yeah exactly yeah and he tries to slit his wrists in the in the phone box too yeah. doesn't he which, but he can't bring himself about to do it anyway. Um, so yeah. So anyway, he goes through the theater, but that's um, he hangs around in there. But that's when the transformation starts happening. Yeah. And he starts to thump the chair in front of him, writhing, writhing, writhing in the theater, <laughs> while while the porn yeah. film is on in the background. Um, and weirdly, the usher's watching him. He's just standing there, going, <laughs> yeah. getting his own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a bit weird. When you think about it. And, uh, yeah, so... And the transformation happens. Turns into a werewolf. And he kills the, the usher. And he also kills the other... The, I guess he's the theatre manager or somebody that goes down to find out what's going on. Keep an eye on him. Then the coppers and turn up. And then the coppers turn up. They barricade him in. That's not going to hold him, though, is it? No. A bit of metal like that's going to... not. And, and you were saying here, like, how also... It's a good point. Like he, every time he transforms, the wolf slightly looks looks different, and I think it's to obviously to do with, in order to get the shot, you have to kind of, you know, make it look right for the shot that they're trying to carry out. Because he's, I feel like his shoulders were quite big in this end bit. Yeah, there was a lot of that because that was a guy sort of on a in a being wheelbarrowed, ah, so he had his yeah. arms like that, so his shoulders would have been up there. Okay, and, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So um. 
anyway, he manages to break himself free. But this is the this is the fucked up bit as well. Like carnage left, right, and centre. It's great. Um, we're in the middle of of Leicester, uh, Piccadilly Circus here, and um, you know there's crashes happening, cars hitting people. There's just as he jumps out though, this is where the main cop has arrived, and he yeah. bites his head off, and it goes flying across the bonnet of a car. <laughs> See, it's funny you say bonnet because you're an Englishman as well, but. Uh... That's where John uh, Landis had a problem. I don't know if you heard this story. No. He was directing the guys, and this is the one language barrier he's had out of his whole career of filming. I think he yeah. filmed like seven films in England. Right. He said, right, what I want you to do is I want you to throw the head on the uh, hood of the car. And the whole crew just stood there and stared at him. And it's like, pick up the head and throw it across the hood of the car. <laughs> and they still didn't get it. So yeah. he, he actually physically picked up the head and put it on top of the, the hood of the car. And he's like, look, there it is. And they're like, oh, you meant the bonnet. The bonnet, not the hood. Why didn't you say bonnet? And it's just like, that's the whole ah. the language barrier. God. But yeah. then you see um, John Landis, you know, he used to be a stuntman. So he thought yes. he had all his stuntman mates on the set saying, why aren't you doing any stunts? So he threw himself through uh, the Bureau de Change, Bureau de Change window. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that great. The crew all gave him like, you know, two out of ten <laughs> little cards and... But that, that whole scene where they had to close off Piccadilly Circus was incredible. Yeah, so it's an amazing scene. That. Like so, like, like as I said, there's like cars smashing. There's even a there's a double decker bus kind of coming careering through there as well. They had to specially make that bus as well, like the undercarriage of it, so it could actually do that turn. Oh right. And, yeah. Just the stunt that stood out to us in that bit was the guy getting sandwiched between two cars. Yes, that was incredible. Which I still don't. We we kind of said I don't know how they did that because it. Clearly looked like a car swinging round into another car, and there's a guy in between it. It must have been just depth, I guess. And they had a stuntman yeah. stand there, and the car was obviously further away than. than yeah, than, yeah. I guess. Yeah, well, that would make sense. Um, the trick of the eye with the camera. Um, so yeah, lots of kind of rampage, carnage, and eventually they 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 corner uh, David down a dark alleyway. At the same time, the doctors turned up. To Jenny, he said, "There's a rampage going on Piccadilly Circus." Yeah. David, <laughs> it's got to be David. Um, and so they go, and she turns up. She managed to fight her way through the army. Mm. <laughs> all Walk armed through, up, fall over. Yeah, get there through the dark alley, and then she kind of clambers her way through. She sees, like you know, he's a trap beast now in in a, in a dark alley in a corner. David cowering, and she tries to plead with him. Says she loves him, and. There's a moment of recognition in his eyes. Yeah, it's, it's awesome because you're like, oh, maybe that's it. She's made a connection and they're, they're, he's going to, you know, everything's great. And then he goes for the kill. Yeah. But thankfully, the um, armed forces are there and they take him down, mm. shooting him. And we don't get a transition back. It's just a snap cut of him as as human form. The same as with the original attacker as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I guess just that's... Not in budget, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But it's also more effective as well because you just like you cut to it's like oh that's him. Mm. You recognise him straight away. And there's um not not to the same effect, but I don't know why this is coming to my mind. But you know when uh, Kiefer Sutherland dies in Lost Boys, and you, yeah. he suddenly looks really youthful yeah. in his face. There's that kind of whole you know he's a boy up to that point he looked like a guy like a man. Yeah, yeah. But he did the way they shot that he actually kind of looks quite boyish. Yeah, because I guess that's showing that he is just a kid at the end of the day. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, and naked. Not Kiefer Sutherland, but no. David Norton. There's a lot um, of male nakedness. There is a lot of male naked, naked, which is like hats off to him. Yeah. To be able to kind of bear himself uh, in more ways than one in this. Um, yeah, great, great kind of little moment. And then just snap cuts to Blue Moon. Blue Moon, yeah. And that's, I think that's kind of the, the comedy of Credits. it, isn't it? It's just like a punchy yeah. coming with an upbeat track after witnessing the hero die. Yeah. It then cuts into like, right, fuck it, that's it. It's the end now. Yeah. And I think that's just that little moment of comedy you try to inject rather than, you know, pulling out to a nice wide shot and dissolving. You know. Which is where, like, I guess a lot of modern films go a bit wrong is that they always feel the need to kind of prolong the ending. Mm. When sometimes you don't need to. Particularly in this instance... The Especially journey in has, has finished. Yeah. In horror, it's really good just having that bang. It's like final. It's dead. Yeah. Cut. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's cool.
what what are your what are your thoughts? Like we've just obviously, as I said, we've come out from watching this again on the big screen. What are you, what are your thoughts about rewatching this again? Did it trigger any memories to you, or does it still stand up today? Do you think? Hundred percent. The one thing that stood out to me was just how short it is. Yeah, yeah. Because um, then I sort of realised when he entered the cinema, that was kind of the final, almost the final scene. I guess that was the final, you know, where it was all set in that area. Yep. Um, was I thought I remember that being in the middle of the film before, uh, but no, I, I still love it. I still love the comedy. I think I can appreciate the comedy a lot more now. I'm a bit older. Mm. I've obviously seen it loads of times since. Yeah. So I found the more I, I rewatched it, the more I got the different jokes, or I think I filled in mentally the, the dots, and yeah. I think it's easier to follow the story and the dream sequences. You can kind of understand a bit more, and um, yeah, I still really enjoyed it. I can't wait for my kids to be old enough to watch it. Yeah, same, same. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's just one of those movies that I think, yeah, it's so, it's so well done. And like, because it's it's almost like a, you know, because as you said, it's it's, it's a short film in mm. a sense. It's like a, and it captures this one moment, this journey, if you will, of David's character. And it's almost, I'm almost kind of reminded of like the Edgar Allan Poe kind of short stories. Yeah, things, where yeah. It's, it's succinct and it's in one moment. You follow one main character from beginning to end, and again, like uh, even H.G. Wells is the Invisible Man. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one journey. As soon as that journey ends, that's the end of the film. You don't need to go beyond that. Like you know, I think I think it does it really well. Um, yeah. So I think uh, in that sense, I think it's it's really kind of true to those kind of classic uh, uh, Gothic literature books and stories that I mean I've certainly kind of thrown myself into. Um, so I never really thought of it as part of the universal canon before, but I guess it kind of is, right? Yeah, no, I think, well, you're right, because it was, you know, released by Universal Pictures, and you wouldn't necessarily kind of consider it canon, I don't think, because it's so, it's it has its own identity in its own right. It's genre-breaking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, and, uh, but I, like, it's, you know, it does, um, it does reference those Universal films, though, you, yeah. you know, they go into great detail about the plot of The Wolfman. Which, when I was watching that just now, I just I did think then they do kind of go into quite a lot of detail around that for for a movie reference within a film. Yeah. Which made me go, yeah, you can only really do that if the if they own the property, because um, otherwise they get libelled. And um, but yeah, like it's it's one of those like you know we prefaced this at the beginning saying you know it's it is the ultimate werewolf movie. I don't think any war film has ever come close to meeting this either and i think it's not just about the the effects it's not it's not out and out scary there's some horrific moments in it but that blend of horror effects and comedy is so perfect in this film which is why i think it stands the test of time today and, and resonates so well and and as you said can't wait to show it to our kids when when they're old enough to sit down and watch it with us it's it's a it's a great film and and one of the things thinking about it now watching it as, as an adult is also that whole element of suicide and because he's oh, been yeah. set up as such a nice guy yeah that he's like okay what can i do to stop this he's on board with everything that's happening he's mm. like okay mm. right well how can i fix this and that's sort of like the ultimate sacrifice someone can do is to you know kill themselves that's exactly right, Nick. I think you know you made a good point. Um, there are there are some elements in here that are very deep, very thought provoking. You know, as you said, with the suicide, uh, the whole kind of sexualization, the um, sexual awakening, I should say, um, and that kind of very kind of male male approach to uh, that kind of sexual awakening, and you know, the, as you said, the whole stiffening and hairy, the hairy, <laughs> hairy palms. Um, and the the whole kind of Freudian thing, as I said, that I'm sure that wasn't you know a mistake. This whole kind of attraction he has to the Jenny character being very nurturing and motherly towards him. Um, yeah, there's some there's some great kind of kind of moments in this. It's a great mix of not only great directing, a man that obviously you know John Landis knows his genre, and he plays it to a T, um, delivers great performances from the cast in there and you were even saying as we were watching it too just today 
um, even the, the small characters that are in it kind of lend weight to the overall picture. Yeah, they make it, and it's how the, the leads interact with them as well. Mm. And, and the smaller characters are also given funny lines to play off. Yes. It's, yeah, they're great. Yeah, and the, so the chemistry just works, you know, and you got, as I say, you throw in the, the special effects and... And like, yeah, you could, if you're going to kind of throw, um, if you're going to say something kind of begrudgingly about it, some of the dialogue in it is a bit ropey, but I think it's forgivable because it's honest dialogue too, as we said, like it's, it's, uh, he really, uh, lets these characters, uh, show their, or bear their hearts and, leave them right for the picking for when they eventually kind of have their downfall and get ripped apart yeah um which is great it's great storytelling and um you know and i said and i think because it's an adaptation of the time it was an adaptation of the classics that have gone on before and sign of uh somebody that can write a good script is you write either write what you know or you write what you um or you base it on something like a legendary story or like, you know, be it, in this case, it's it's the story of the werewolf, but, you know, you could pick up any of the Grimm's fairy tales and then transport it into your own world. Hence why um, Pan's Labyrinth does that whole kind of dark kind of fairy tale, fairy tale kind of stuff. And it's very similar, like, that he's done. He And in this instance, though, John Landis not only does that the latter, but he does the former in the sense that he... Um, he uh, he knows the subject, as I said, and I think that really helps this uh, story develop and and transform um, into the beast that it is. Yeah, because um, he was criticised when it first came out for it being too funny to be a horror movie mm. and too scary to be a comedy. But that's the, and I think that's but that's to me that is the beauty of the film. Like if we look back at the oh, fi- too, the yeah. films that stand out like we you were talking about uh the monster squad earlier you know that's got the comedy element in there too you throw in evil dead yeah comedy horror gremlins we've mentioned as well comedy horror all these films stand out because i think they trigger that kind of um pre-adolescent kind of period that the people are watching this in like the teen like the late teenage kind of and and you know you there's that aching to be young again relive your youth but also striving to be an adult and be independent and this is kind of where these worlds collide between being young and and an adult mm. and not knowing where they meet and what you get is this complex kind of uh transformation process that all humans go through and this is what um john landis kind of rides the coattails of that and really enhances that to the nth degree and thrusts it deep within a licensed throat film yeah it's great so so good um any last thoughts or any kind of like standout moments you want to shout out to within the film oh, i could go on for days or you know <laughs> picking it apart even more but no i, I just really enjoyed it I've, yeah oh it's always been one of my favorites um you know on a rewatch i did notice some of the acting's you know not the best in times mm. but the story's there and it's a comedy so it's a bit more forgivable yeah uh, but no the special effects still hold up I love the writing I love the story and uh, no it's just great fun it's awesome awesome stuff and um, and just to echo what you said I really enjoyed watching it tonight as well and like I said like I, I, something I never said actually in the, in the preface is I've never been to a driving film ever oh well there you go and so I was a virgin and I lived to see the end of it which, which I'm thankful for um but it was a great. It was actually so good to see a classic film like that on the big screen, um, and what it was made for, you know, to kind of that's what those these old horror films are about. It's kind of you know watching it on uh, on the screen, mm. and um, yeah, it's a it's a good movie. It's uh, I yeah, as I said, I'm repeating myself, but it stands the test of time. And there's so many great lines, great music, and moments within that film. Um, and rewatching it again, I was chuckling a lot, laughing out loud, and that's a sign of of something that, um, you know, I, as I said, I've watched it millions of times and I'm still laughing at it. So it's it's testament to Landis and the crew. Yeah, great, great movie, and and uh, it was been enjoyable talking about it as well. Yeah, definitely. after the fact. 
Cool. Well, I think that kind of ends up our uh, Full Moon Sessions discussions for the Sessions of Horror podcast. Um, thank you for uh, tuning in and listening to us. Once again, I'm your humble host and lead surgeon, Paul Farrell, and I was joined by Nick Alford. And that's us for today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks. Goodbye. See ya. You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Music supplied by Peter Nezik. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.